Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about getting stuck in the middle with you, Adam Naiman. On today's episode, we are hopping in a time machine back to 1992. Why are we doing that? Well, it's been 30 years since Quentin Tarantino's debut film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, along with a memorable class of other filmmakers making debuts of their own. Adam is here to discuss dogs and what it means now and some other films that were remembered or not. And you know, the Sundance Film Festival is happening right now, and it has a slightly different reputation than it did way back when. So let's go back 30 years ago, Adam. Reservoir Dogs, you weren't there. You weren't in Park City that day no. when the film premiered, but I'm sure the film made an impact on you. No, I, was what, at, what was uh, I was in Morris Cody Elementary School in Toronto, Sean. <laughs> I was 11 years old. Uh, I, too, was 10 years old, and we're yeah. just a couple of late 30s, early 40-somethings talking about a Quentin Tarantino movie on a podcast. But, and, um, yet, you- and yet it does feel like one of those movies that if I were to dig back into the deep recesses of my mind, that and maybe it's the same for you, you didn't hear about it the way you heard about the normal movies, right? You, you know what I'm saying when I, when I say that? It wasn't I like I was seeing a movie with my dad and there was a trailer for Reservoir Dogs. It was probably something that was either like a VHS preview or something in the back of one of the many general interest magazines my family subscribed to, or probably Entertainment Weekly, which my family subscribed to, which I started reading like a little, you know, fake movie biz person when I was a kid, which is really cute. But it, Same. But it felt like something simultaneously that was coming, but had also been. And it was a big deal that this thing had been and that a certain enclave of, of influential people had seen it. And now it was coming and all the boring people in your life, like your parents don't want you to watch it. And all the cool people in your life are like, yeah, watch it. It's like a devil on your shoulder. I have better recall of Pulp Fiction being that way just because I literally was a teenager at that point. But I remember Reservoir Dogs from before I saw it. Yeah, I have the same experience. The difference, I guess, for me is I did not get a chance to see it until after I saw Pulp Fiction. And so I saw this movie a few years after the fact, and I think I actually got, and perhaps this explains a bit about my predilection for hype culture around filmmakers and around movies, but I got excited about the idea of a Quentin Tarantino movie just from watching quick time videos of the Reservoir Dogs trailer 
over and over again on my early, early Windows pre-95 computer. And I don't know what it was that that ensnared me, that got me excited about this movie. Maybe it's a little bit about what you're talking about, but I'm not even sure at the age of 10 or 11 if I had cool people in my life to tell me that this was a cool movie. How were you even made aware of its existence, just aside from Entertainment Weekly? Did, did you have friends who were you know, interested in this world? Did you have older friends who knew about movies like I, this? I had friends with older siblings, right? Who were who were somewhat curatorial. I definitely remember them bullying with early 90s music and sort of being like, get rid of that tape of Aerosmith's get a grip. That's not good music. <laughs> you know what's good music is, you know, I mean, I'm not we don't talk about that. But I remember, you know, older, older, older siblings kind of doing that. And there was, and I mean, again, it was it was kind of like schoolyard stuff or or hallway stuff. It was like, you know, someone's dad saw something or, 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 or whatever. And I know that the poster for Reservoir Dogs in the pages of the Globe and Mail, because, you know, newspapers used to have movie ads all the time. And that's how you learn about a lot of stuff was just opening up that section. You know, that, that, that poster was there before the movie opened and it was pretty seductive. I mean, we can, we'll probably end up talking about that poster and how it's kind of shorthand for a whole bunch of aspects of fan culture that are also kind of easy to make fun of like dorm room poster kind of movie. But before you can be on the back end of that and taking that apart and all the terrible things that it means, you got to speak to how appealing that is to someone who just wants a dorm room or, you know, a a room that actually, you know, like, you know, their mom's not going to come bug them and stuff. There was something about Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction that felt profoundly teenage to someone who was either not quite or about to become teenage and i don't know if this was the same for you with tarantino too but it was a deeply imitative kind of awareness where it was kind of like i see this thing and also i kind of want to do that and i don't know what mm-hmm. that is it maybe wear a suit or something but it, it it was a it was a it was it was a vibe and it's embarrassing to talk about now but it was the opposite of, of embarrassing when i was 11 or 12 in fact when i was 11 or 12 it was maybe the one unembarrassing thing was that the poster for Reservoir Dogs looked cool. And I'm sure if I could find some way to watch this movie, it would be cool. And then I would, by the transitory principle, be cool. Yeah, one of the ways that um, the movie went into the culture was not just because there was this exciting script and this exciting young filmmaker, but because the movie did actually premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. But the road to the festival, I think, is kind of fascinating. You know, Tarantino's kind of rise, so to speak, has been chronicled many times over. but the idea of a movie like this emerging at that time is unique. You know, the way that the film was funded, which is to say that Tarantino had been hustling scripts, Natural Born Killers and True Romance in particular across Hollywood for a couple of years in the late 80s and early 90s, been trying to catch some work as an actor. He'd been trained as an actor and he wasn't really having a ton of success doing so. And he stumbles across Monty Hellman, the great filmmaker who he really loved, and a guy named Richard Gladstein who ran a company called Live Entertainment. And somehow he got through Lawrence Bender, a producer friend of his, who eventually became his producing partner, got the script into Harvey Keitel's hands. And all of these people together sort of fixed this little tiny shoot 'em up movie, you know, this heist movie, this complex script that is also very, very simple. And by the summer of 91, the movie's being shot in Highland Park here in Los Angeles. And it's, it's a movie like no other and yet 
it is a movie that we saw so many times in the 1990s. And I find it a little bit hard to kind of untangle what you were describing, which is this sense of anticipation that we got around the movie, this sense of cool that people got. It's almost like organized their personalities around both before and after it came out. And now sort of what the movie means. So let's try to unpack a little bit about that. What place in the culture does Reservoir Dogs have for you now? And how does that relate to the way that you saw it when you were 11, 12 years old? Well, one of the pieces that I was, you know, that I, that I wrote for The Ringer a couple of years ago, and again, I don't, I don't want to drag too much towards Pulp Fiction, but that idea that whatever battles Tarantino might have lost in the early 90s, like he did not win the grand prize at Sundance, for instance, that year, a very enduring film that no one can ever forget watching called In the Soup did a movie that is on everybody's right. lips listening to this show now they've got their blu-ray of in the soup you know <laughs> you know Paul Fiction didn't win the Oscars but no filmmaker won the cultural war like Tarantino did coming out of the 90s he was a winner at the time he was kind of became a front runner at the time but he has won the cultural war to some extent and there's an awful lot of American pop culture not just movies but you know TV and the things in between TV and cinema and things adjacent to TV and cinema it is made in his image to an extent you know and I think that that idea of him being a kind of a a guy who pushed some idea of being a rebel or a usurper or 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 someone oppositional is now so interesting to see now that he really is a front runner and like the only person who can get a non-Marvel movie made at a certain budget level that's going to be profitable. That's the legacy. You know, the, the 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 legacy is, you know, he came out of nowhere to end up being everywhere and like truly everywhere with, you know, like fingers or tentacles and so many different aspects of film culture and that's kind of hard to disentangle from certain genuinely modest aspects of reservoir dogs not modest in terms of dialogue or personality but modest in terms of production value to the point that let's put it this way when we get later in this episode and talk about the unveiling of sundance 92 it's not like this stood apart and was like oh this is the big thing it wasn't it was just a movie that happened to be there the audience made it into a big thing because of how they reacted to how Tarantino's cinema worked on first blush. I don't think any of us can honestly watch Tar- new Tarantino movies anymore fresh. What does that even mean? It's like looking at the color blue for the first time. Like we just know what this is now. And then we have mixed opinions on greater or lesser or diminishing returns and how tired or how inventive you know his act has gotten over time these the fun thought experiments reservoir dogs and you have to actually go to the archives and read the reviews and stuff is how did people react to this for a first time and that was even stratified by age too because for the film critics who'd seen a ringo lamb movie before or who'd seen the killing they weren't talking about originality they were talking about derivativeness then for a lot of other people this is the the dangerous thing about Tarantino and the irresistible thing about him, they're seeing the whole of film history being spit out in a way that to them feels original. Like this is their first encounter or engagement with it. And so of course it feels amazing. Imagine sitting down and watching something that's got Ringo Lamb and Stanley Kubrick in it. And then imagine you don't knowing what those, what those things are just to say, imagine being 13. Yeah. I would say that that is probably one of the things that I had, admire most about the movie is the fact that there is a derivative quality to it and that you know Tarantino historically does not deny the fact that he doesn't borrow he steals he steals from every film and every filmmaker that he likes the thing that is interesting about that movie though is you're right to say that it is not unlike most of the films that premiered at Sundance 1992 and like a lot of independent movies because this is really the last time that 
Quentin Tarantino had limitations, you know, budgetary limitations, style limitations, casting limitations. Pretty much from here on out, he's able to cast people like Bruce Willis. Pretty much from here on out, he's able to raise his budgets to 20, 30, 40 million dollars on each project. And so this is an interesting experiment. You know, it feels much more like a um, you know, like a ship in a bottle kind of a movie where you really have to do everything just so to make it work in the way that it does. And it's a lot of different kinds of movies at once. And I wonder, like, I, th- I think there was something erroneous about the way that he was classified in those early days as a quote-unquote original voice. Um, and maybe some of that is because of the pop culture-laden dialogue. Maybe some of that is because of the sense that there was this invention with the way that he was cutting and carving time and moving pieces around in his movies. When in fact, I think energy is really the thing that I am feeling from his movies when I watch them. And I rewatched Reservoir Dogs last night and I was like, this is not only propulsive, it is alive. It is throbbing as a movie. And that is actually a lot harder to do than City on Fire homage or um, the perfect needle drop. There's something pulsating in his movies that I'm still having a hard time kind of locating how he does it, but he does it. Well, he's he he does it like someone who's a very adept viewer, right? And there's an extent to which now he's reinvented himself weirdly as not weirdly, I mean he's reinvented himself credibly, I should say, as sometimes a critic and sometimes a historian and a kind of keeper of the 35 millimeter flame. You know, this is a guy who spent his life watching movies, maybe to the you know, to the extent that he didn't develop normal social skills or or, or a normal <laughs> sense of the world outside movies, which is where the historical turn of his later movies becomes interesting, where suddenly it's not enough to just do film history. It's more to sort of, you know, use cinema to, to, to engage with history. But I think that if he didn't exist, you know, history would have had to invent him. He's one of those filmmakers because you're dealing at a point in the 90s where the scale of American movies has gotten so grotesque and even people who enjoy blockbuster spectacle are like, how many sequels and reiterations can we kind of take? And we're independent cinema, and we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, but in that Spike Mike Slackers Dykes mode of a kind of oppositional, implicitly maybe political, implicitly kind of diverse mode, you know, is there, but it doesn't occupy or really appeal with a couple of exceptions to a kind of, you know, young, disposable income kind of audience. So, so Tarantino kind of becomes a bridge in that, in that gap. Politically, ideologically, the things that he's pushing towards or against, he actually doesn't fit with the other Sundance filmmakers that year. You look at that doc that's on Criterion about Sundance 92, and it's about representational politics and the festival from on down, Redford sort of being like space for different stories, space for different stories, which whether it's earnest or boilerplate is still kind of new language in 1992. And then Tarantino's got a movie that's, you know, uh, you know, it begins with deconstruction of, 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 of like a virgin and has all kinds of, you know, repulsive language only doesn't really skirt the racial stuff because it happens to be an all white movie, which is going to get he's going to get more into trouble later with 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 Pulp Fiction. You know, it's got all kinds of sexual methods in it and masochistic violence. I mean, it doesn't fit the progressive agenda is what I'm saying in, in, in that sense. I've seen it described as a movie that looks like the 50s set in the 90s, but acts like the 70s. Yeah. And that's not not really something that you can say about pretty much any other film released independently in that year and in this, in this class. But even in refusing to be, let's say, either as innocuous or as craven as Hollywood product, 
it's not behaving subversively like independent product. I mean, there's that great line that David Foster Wallace had that in Blue Velvet, whatever else you think of that movie, David Lynch is interested in a human ear and in Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino just wants to show the ear be cut off, right? You know, it's, and it's not quite the Coen brothers who from the very beginning are clearly trying to investigate deep existential stuff. Maybe Tarantino was too, but that's not where the excitement in Reservoir Dogs was. The excitement was the cruelty and the sadism and the energy and the cool. Cool is a really hard thing to quantify because cool goes out of style kind of just like that. And that's why I think you're right the decade mixing is what's really significant about that movie not just the energy but that sense of timelessness but not vague timelessness a specific kind of timelessness it's not that it doesn't belong to any one time that it belongs to multiple times simultaneously and so it activates something in older viewers and and especially i think in 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 younger viewers as well the other movies if sundance that year that's a really interesting lineup which we'll get into even put together they don't equal that kind of opportunism and accessibility that tarantino somehow cultivated because the impact of this movie is seismic i'm still struck by the limitations though when i go back and look at it i don't think i quite realized how small this movie yeah. is the fact that it is primarily set in one place and you know I've, as i've been watching the new sundance films this year in virtual sundance and trying to locate all of the covid productions and many of these films are covid productions yeah. reservoir dogs could have been a covid production it's a very small cast there's only three to four locations everything is very cloistered the storytelling is almost claustrophobic and you can I think the fact that he is able to transcend that specifically and make it feel as if you have been sunk into a world is really the thing that recommends it the most. There is a like a milieu that he is creating in this movie that is a little bit different, I would say, from the ones that he makes after this. And I'm not sure what that is. Is it the film stock? Is it the fact that he's working with a, a DP that I mean, he didn't work with as much in the future? Is it the way that the script is written? Is it the way that it is stylized in particular? Some of the craftspeople that worked on it early on. I can't quite figure it out, but it, do, it actually, even though Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are, are, are kissing cousins in some way, this movie feels a little bit different. Do you know what I'm saying when I when I say that? It's because in Pulp Fiction, there's nothing that it doesn't ultimately show you. It may show it to you out of order. It may show it to you from an unexpected angle. You may not expect to run into character A from the point of view of character B. I mean, Reservoir Dogs is all about absence. You know, mm. it's the planning of a heist you never see. <laughs> whose aftermath is already kind of vague and only half understood because it limits point of view. And when it does flash back and when it does, you know, jigger with, with the, you know, with, with chronology, uh, it's not necessarily filling things in. It's kind of just reiterating stuff you've already seen from a slightly different point of view. I mean, blank blanks get filled in, but they don't get filled in with production value, you know? And in that sense, he does not only create a world, but he creates a world where the off-screen action feels relatively credible. You don't watch the movie doubting. You don't watch the movie skeptically going, well, there's no heist because they couldn't afford it. You know, you don't watch right. you don't watch the movie thinking there's no heist because you know he made this and not Michael Mann or something. It's just a really strong storytelling decision, but that which isn't shown or that which isn't seen seen still feels like it belongs to that world. And I think another reason why it creates its own universe is because he's not struggling to live up to some Quentin Tarantino universe and some really half-cocked and to me ongoingly only semi-successful idea to be like, this is all in the same place. And they all smoke the same brand of cigarettes and people are brothers. I mean, he plays with this shit all the time. 
and kind of means it and kind of doesn't. I think it's interesting that he didn't, he doesn't have a legacy to live up to with this movie. He's just kind of putting himself out there. And modest is an interesting word because you used it. It is in some ways a modest movie because of its limitations, but the personality is so deeply immodest. It's the sound of someone who likes to hear himself talk. No wonder people like us gravitated towards it. But the, <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that, Adam. I'm but not the, sure but the, the, the sound of well, someone who likes to hear himself talk and who's going to make you listen to him talk. And I, I don't know if you would agree with this or disagree with this because you watched it last night and I haven't watched it for about, I don't know, a year or so. I think what's interesting about this film is not what people would often say about dialogue that's good. They don't all speak in a distinctive way. They all kind of talk the same. And that was really in vogue around this time with like David Mamet. You know, this is where Mamet starts having his fingerprints over a lot of American TV and, and theater and film. They have like, uh, they talk in a particular idiom, they talk in a particular argo or, or, or dialect. They don't, you don't have clashing dialogue types in this movie. They're the same. It's really the sound of one voice for 90 minutes. And it's fascinating. I think you can see that actually more in television now. I think if you see a show like Succession, where Every yeah. character has a kind of verbal dexterity and a kind of flash pan wit. There is some remnants of that in our culture that exists. Although I will say that Tarantino, that opening speech and, and the first voice we hear in this movie is, of course, Tarantino's telling the like a virgin story. That scene in particular feels like the scene that works the least well in the movie now. And maybe that part of that is because it has gone through the cultural meat grinder and we've talked about it quite a bit. But I think that that feels like a scene in which he is legitimately trying to ape David Mamet, whereas some of the other scenes feel slightly more born out of his own, um, I don't want to say invention necessarily, but his own like photosynthesis of culture. You know, he's always kind of transmogrifying his idea of culture into the movie. Well, and they're mitigated by the fact that he's not actually delivering the dialogue. You know, I mean, when we're talking about Reservoir Dogs, we're also talking about to go far enough back here where it's like the scene in Sleep With Me where he talks about Top Gun. Right. Or the bit in Crimson Tide, which is now a little later, but, you know, he script doctored where we have just, you know, the pop cultural riffing and the dialogue of Crimson Tide, which never the silver fit, surfer, the silver yeah. surfer thing, which never fit in that movie. But at the time, people are like, well, that's good because Tarantino, you know, it's a big Hollywood blockbuster, but here's some cool pop culture riffage. Again, I think in, in 1992 it would have been pretty, must have been just incredibly fresh. Right. And having it straight from the source like that also casts him into a particular tradition of the writer, director, star that even though that's not really been who he is since then, I mean, it's more like cameos, you know, premiering at a festival like Sundance, which is, you know, filled with homages to people like Cassavetes or, or, or an idea of American independent cinema that's maybe closer to a Woody Allen or a Spike Lee in terms of the do it all multi hyphen at that opening scene is really significant. This is a film by Quentin Tarantino, and here he is, and he's introducing you to himself and, and to his world. And I, I went back and you know reread Roger Ebert's early review of that film, and he's you know saying, oh, this is an actor who could end up playing great, great crazy villains in other people's movies. He's like interested in Tarantino as a character and a kind of on-screen on-screen presence. So that you know that 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 strategy is very purposeful. I see a lot of different kinds of movies in this movie. You know, I see it's very much a chamber piece. It's a movie that's about performance because we've got Mr. Orange as this kind of double agent and all, all these characters have these sort of nicknames. There's almost like a superhero getting the gang together quality to it. Um, you know, it's also, tell me if you can go along with me on this, but it feels like in my memory, 
the first internet movie. You know, I mentioned that trailer and trying to download that trailer on incredibly slow, you know, uh, incredibly slow internet feed at the time. The soundtrack and trying to acquire the soundtrack and hear songs. There's no YouTube at this time. You know, you can't, there's no Spotify. You can't just find any song you want. When I saw this movie for the first time, I was like, what are these songs and where can I get them? Because they were not pop songs. These were not 70 songs that my parents listened to. This wasn't the Eagles or Diana Ross. These were obscure bubblegum songs that had kind of gone out of fashion and out of rotation. You mentioned that sort of interconnected world aspect too, where if you've seen Pulp Fiction before this movie, as I had, and I knew about Vincent Vega, and then we're introduced to a character named Vic Vega, and then it's becoming clear that these are characters, and this is also not unlike the comic books that I like to read. And there's this idea of this ever-expanding universe that never actually fits together. But we know that there are satellites speaking to each other from across the galaxy of this guy's movies. It felt like a movie that was born to be message-boarded. And I I, I I guess I'm trying to figure out... I'm sure there are other examples of well, this Well, no, the I'm, time. I'm, I'm thinking because we're around the same age as has been made painfully clear a couple times already today <laughs> so i'm thinking 1992 for instance so i'm no more pop culturally aware or mature when i saw terminator 2 really than when i saw because of our dogs and i saw terminator 2 because my mom made them let me into the movie theater because she's awesome and likes the terminator movie. she's the best but uh terminator 2 is not an internet movie and I don't just mean subjectively for me that I had books on the making of it that I used to read and read and read how they did the effects. It was like, in a way, there's nothing, there's no depths to plumb or mysteries to unravel because it's all very present in the culture. Even the soundtrack, you know, is like Guns and Roses, you know? I mean, with, with Reservoir Dogs, there's a certain cultivated obscurity to it where it's not a sequel to The Terminator, but there's a Hong Kong movie that it's kind of based on. Or, you know, like I had seen The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 by the time I was 12, because again, my mom rules. And so the idea of a character's name, Mr. Pink or whatever, I kind of knew that. So in the sense that there's pieces to put together, not in that kind of, you know, David Lynch way of what, you know, how do you add this movie up or the Donnie Darko thing of, you know, what happens in this movie, but the sense that there's these kind of elements requiring a certain amount of research and the primary materials might not be right at hand for everybody. So yeah, you go click on whatever that does feel a little bit, it does feel a little bit internet-y. Um, and yet it's funny too. Now, again, this is just a function of different colliding nostalgias. It also, because it's a radio and whatever, it feels like it, it's such a, it's such an analog memory movie for me. Like mm -hmm. I had friends in junior high school, and this was more Pulp Fiction than Reservoir Dogs, but it was both who for, you know, they were asked to do original projects and they would like create a fake movie soundtrack with fake radio DJ bits in between, which I'm sure if I were to listen to them now would be so bad that I would actually just die <laughs> listening to them. Like my, I would just hemorrhage and die if i listen to them now but you know again that was that imitative thing so even though tarantino was essentially an imitative filmmaker the kind of cool that he was putting out there really inspired a bunch of imitation i'll say one more thing too because criticism was not as democratized and as widespread as it is now the discourse around that movie was almost fully triumphal and affirmative even though there's a lot you can say about it that people should have had problems with the same way they have problems with his movies now, where now the discourse around Tarantino is almost entirely just what kind of shots can you take at these movies and not wrongly so. But I think that for those of us who were maybe aware of things like consensus and acclaim or who even just in the most cursory way would look at like 
graphs of what critics thought of a movie or star ratings or something. That was the other thing about it that felt so seismic. It's like, oh God, everybody seems to like this. How can this outlaw, dangerous seeming thing also be such a kind of intellectual lightning rod and, and rallying point? Because Tarantino was made by critics before he was made by audiences. And that's where the film festival heritage of Reservoir Dogs is very significant because people fawned over it. You're right, but there was also a significant amount of controversy attached to the movie that I we didn't use wor- the word problematic back then, but the ear-cutting scene that you referenced, which I, I, I think is a little bit of a Trojan horse for the, 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 the telling of the story of the movie and probably greatly helped the movie. And it probably is a, a very specific provocation on Tarantino's part to include that scene in the way that he did. But people took issue with that. And um, it was, I would not say it was warmly embraced. I would say whether it was necessarily uh, critics who were, who were criticizing that sequence, it was deemed unsafe, I would say. And p- p- walkouts were, were well known for the film. Some, some film, Wes Craven famously walked out of the movie and didn't enjoy it. So it's, it wasn't without, without controversy. I guess the idea of whether or not something being acclaimed is noisy enough to drown out those concerns. It felt like it was easier for that to happen now. Yeah, I mean, but it was also that the critics at the time who cast their lot with it were sort of casting their lot with aesthetics and style and, you know, morality is so boring and they're reaching back past the 80s, back to the 70s, where they would sort of say, you know, people said that about Peckinpah or people said that about Scorsese or, or, or De Palma. It's almost like it's almost like Reservoir Dogs is maybe a way to put it. It's like where the '80s never happened, you know. The 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 not just '80s music and '80s culture, but like just that kind of smoothing out and and making boring of American mainstream film in the '80s didn't happen, or or Reservoir Dogs just kind of ignored it. And that, and Tarantino is famous for saying that the '80s was the worst decade for American movies. Full stop. Yeah. You know that the '50s and the '80s are terribly boring. You know. There's a couple of other things about the movie that I think are are really fascinating. Um, one in particular is just, like I said, that this is really how I became aware of what Sundance was. And it sort of tricked me into thinking that Sundance was full of cool movies. And I, cool is really not the right word, I think, for this festival. So Tarantino, one, he studied and I guess sort of trained slash uh, performed at the Sundance Institute. So he took this script and, you know... Um, blocked some of the scenes with Steve Buscemi, folks like Terry Gilliam and Volker Schlondorf sort of observed what he was doing with this movie, which is something that, you know, Sundance has this incredible heritage of working with young filmmakers and crafting, uh, helping them craft their careers. And, you know, Tarantino, like so many before him and after him, got to do this. And they basically encouraged him to kind of retain his vision, you know, that he had these unusual ideas, I think, for how to stage some of these scenes for a movie that could have looked like a play. And, you know, David Mamet is sometimes accused of this as well. A lot of like, you know, men talking in rooms kind of movies. And I think he found a way to bring a vivacity to it in part with that. So movie is also a pretty big hit. It was a, a modest art house hit in the US, but it's a huge hit in Europe. And this is the other thing that made him so famous is Festival Darling in the United States goes abroad and takes his film to other festivals around the world. And also, of course, is celebrated by the English press and celebrated by the French press and becomes very much like some of those 70s auteurs, a European star, someone who is obsessed over in a very specific way. It feels like that would have been impossible without the Sundance launch pad as well, which I find 
kind of interesting. I, is that still something that is happening now? Do you see that the, like European filmmakers becoming obsessed with American filmmakers in the 2010s and 20s? No, I mean, I think that there's there's little echoes of it either because some of the American filmmakers who the Europeans are obsessed with are still around. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was very sy- symbolic when Clint Eastwood gave Tarantino the Palme d'Or, not just in 94, not just because Cannes, had taken Eastwood seriously in the past, but because Eastwood was passing some mantle onto Tarantino, even though they're hugely different artists and there's way less crossover between them. I mean, there's crossover between Eastwood and Spielberg and there's crossover between Spielberg and Tarantino. There's very little actual crossover between the two Eastwood and Tarantino. If Tarantino was a character in an Eastwood movie, Eastwood would punch him. You know, I mean, that's, that's (laughs) the dynamic there. But I think that that idea of kind of sacred American monsters and tough two fisted, American auteurs is always very appealing to the rest of the world. They don't like it so much with American foreign policy, but like with American filmmakers, <laughs> it's very charming. And so Tarantino was sort of a, a throwback, I think, in certain people's eyes to an Aldrich or, or you know, an Edgar Ulmer or something, at least at the at the at the beginning. Um, but you know, now I think it's almost like more like international filmmakers are made in his image, where you look at some of the genre filmmakers who've really traveled and done their form of gentrification for better or worse. I mean, for better, a Bong Joon Ho, or in my mind, a Ben Wheatley. For worse, well, I don't want to name filmmakers who've been guests or whatever, but there's filmmakers who I like who do it less, I like less, like a Refn, for instance, is a good example mm-hmm. of a Tarantino. They're all in his image now. And all of their roads lead towards Hollywood, which is something that would be an interesting thing to get into later here, which is that originally the whole point of Sundance was that these were movies that were pushing against the Hollywood model. And then some of the filmmakers who spearheaded that and did so honestly, like a Spike Lee, eventually the pushing leads them into Hollywood. Then the question is, what, who, what, how is Sundance going to replenish those ranks? I feel now with the festival, there is no question that 80% of the directors who have a movie there would love to be handed the keys to whatever. I don't know how many of these filmmakers want to be Colin Trevorrow, but the Colin Trevorrow uh, arc is not something that they would ward off with steaks and garlic. You know, there's some that would, there's some that would, but most wouldn't. Well, I think you can actually point quite specifically to Reservoir Dogs as the turning point when Sundance became the feeder system for Hollywood. I agree. That it's, yeah. it's, in te- its intentions were initially quite different. That the, it was essentially, it was not just, I, I don't think it was just made for artists who were trying to work outside of the realm of Hollywood or against Hollywood's mission. I think it was many filmmakers, and this is still true of a handful of some people who were participating in the festival, but people who just couldn't get into Hollywood, you know, who even if they tried, they couldn't find their way in. And so they did what they had to do. Tarantino is an example of that. Tarantino is somebody who loves Hollywood, who is fascinated by the movie industry. All you need to do is watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to see that. But he couldn't really get his foot in the door. And so he had to hustle to get this thing off the ground. And when it did hit Sundance, you know, in the program, the film is described as Jim Thompson meets Samuel Beckett, which I think is um, maybe a little bit generous in terms of its uh, literary aspiration. but you know, Tim Roth at the time said they were selling tickets for $100 on the bus yeah. at the festival to see this movie. It was a true blue phenomenon. Now, $100 in 1992 for a film festival screening is no joke. And the fact that it it communicated that cool that we were talking about, and it appealed to not just 11-year-olds living in Toronto or living on Long Island, but the fact that it, it, it struck with 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds you, you, you mean you're not selling your screener link to the Jesse Eisenberg thing for 1000 bucks? 
<laughs> I would never sell a screener no. link that I was uh, <laughs> offered well, as a member of the press, Adam. But um, that's the thing is like... It, it wasn't it was this wasn't manufactured i no. think the interest in this movie was not manufactured no no it wasn't manufactured and i think that it's interesting to use the word manufacturing with sundance because i rewatched as i'm sure you did both to prep for this and out of interest not just some of the movies in this criterion collection this criterion channel thing about sundance 92 which to be honest is one of the spurs when we were talking about doing this right yes. that little documentary about the history of the festival where you see the old heads from the festival these are the older established programmers, even if they no longer work for them. They're like, you know, they're like, you know, accomplished alumni. They knew what Sundance was up until 92. They didn't talk about trying to change it, but they sort of talked about how on one hand it was business as usual and business as usual said with a certain fondness and a little self-satisfaction, you know, convening panels about the new queer cinema and about black cinema. And then you have people on those panels being like, why are these panels special when you do panels with white filmmakers, you just sort of call it film art, you know? So there's always that mix, a little bit of guilt and a little bit of awkwardness and a little bit of cluelessness that comes anytime a white-run festival has a progressive mandate. The film that is not mentioned in that documentary once, except at the beginning, is Reservoir Dogs. I kept waiting for them to clear their throats and mention it. It's because I think on some level, these very respectable and I think praiseworthy programmers who did have Sundance with an oppositional mandate and an independent mandate that was like, we actually don't want to be a feeder system for anything. Sure, they love that Reservoir Dogs was selling for $100 a ticket. And they're proud that they programmed the movie. Imagine if they hadn't, you know, Can had discovered them or Tiff had discovered them. But there was also sort of a sense that this pushed against that. The oppositional nature of Reservoir Dogs is not really rooted in politics or in pushing against authority or hegemony. It's rudeness. And that's why it's adolescent fundamentally. Why I've always thought Tarantino's fundamentally an adolescent artist, even though he's had certain levels of, of maturity. A lot of the other movies that showed at Sundance, whether they're with young people or old people, or even something impudent like Greg Araki, who's an interesting contemporary of Tarantino's, that's political to the friggin' core, you know? And so's Todd Haynes, and so's Spike Lee, and so sometimes is Soderbergh. And that's what I think Redford was cultivating as always political Hollywood guy. This festival was a little, not just a breeding ground for art and not just a, a breeding ground for kind of principled kind of commerce, but he was like always wanting, as he said in that documentary, I want to I support these voices from out of nowhere. Turned out Tarantino was one of those voices from out of nowhere, but what he's speaking with that voice and who he's speaking to and what he's saying with it, I don't think is the Sundance norm and has increasingly become the Sundance norm. Yeah, I want to put Sundance in context a little bit at, at this time, yeah. because as you said, there's this great program on the Criterion channel right now. Uh, I think maybe two dozen films that premiered at the festival are available on the service. And there's this documentary that you can watch that does everything I think, except basically highlight the Reservoir Dogs phenomenon. And there's probably a few reasons for that. One of which is Reservoir Dogs is not offered in this, in this collection of yes. films, although many others are, uh, but just to put it in context, you know, this is three years out from sex laws and videotape, which I think is probably the first authentic Sundance phenomenon. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and two years out from Roger and Me, another political film from a political filmmaker, overtly political filmmaker, Michael Moore. And then the year prior to that, we had films like The Grifters, and we had John Sayles' City of Hope, and Todd Haynes' Poison, and Barbara Koppel's American Dreams. You know, 
Reservoir Dogs has a lot more in common with The Grifters than it does with those other three films. And that there's always been a place, I think, for really good genre filmmaking at Sundance. I think it's the one thing that it probably doesn't get enough credit for, frankly, because other American festivals have always been just as good at it. And so it's not necessarily, you know, South by Southwest loves genre films too. Yeah. You know, the Toronto Film Festival it likes genre films. The Telluride likes the genre films. A lot of these film festivals do that. And so Sundance's identity is as, especially in the last 15 or 20 years, this sort of soft and emotional kind of coming of age story that plays well to older audiences. And But that's not really what the festival was at all in the late 80s and 90s. No, I don't think it was. And I think that Redford... When I say he was the face of it, I mean, I don't mean it disingenuously. I think it's, a, first of all, it's one of the most beautiful faces. You, you you don't have a more beautiful face than Robert Redford's face. It's like, Truly. you know, carved in carved in Utah granite. You know, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's beautiful and he's an emissary of a time when Hollywood was beautiful, or at least you could sell that idea. And it's the kind of movie star he was. He's the movie star who's in The Candidate. He's the guy who brought down Nixon. You know, he's always in the Watchmen comic book. He's the liberal who runs for president. I mean, I'm sure that maybe not (laughs) doesn't matter to him, but it was funny to Alan Moore. You know, he's the perfect face for that because he seems to actually believe in it. But there's just enough glitz and connection there that you know that Sundance isn't going to be all people with their hat in their hands and their pockets turned out making movies. There'll be an industry presence, but he's using his celebrity to lift. And then even putting it in Park City is smart because, you know, it's it's the right coast, maybe the, almost the right time zone, but it's far away from Los Angeles and it's far away from New York, right? So there's a geographical singularity to it and distance and a novelty to the setting. I mean, we don't want to digress too much into the history of film festivals, but film festivals are an interesting phenomenon to look at. They used to be totally nationalistic. You know, it's about promoting your national cinema. And then based on where they are in the calendar, you set terms for the year or you just show everything that's already shown. That's what Toronto was in the beginning. It was the festival of festivals. What's everything that's played elsewhere. Sundance being in January is very significant. It says here, it says, here you go. Here's the new American stuff that's going to make its way to you, either because it gets distribution here, because other festivals can't help but take it. It's anti-Oscar season in a way. You know, it's not the recency effect. It's it's the launch. I also love the idea of it being set in a cold weather environment yeah. at the coldest time of the year. It's it's a dare to Hollywood to say, you're nice and comfortable in Southern California. Come here. And, and be tried, be tested by the boundaries of independent filmmaking. Now, whether it always lives up to that challenge is debatable. But, you know, in, in 92, there was a piece in the LA Times about the state of Sundance just before it kicked off. And Jeff Gilmore, who was the festival director at the time, said, one of the more difficult things to do with the festival this year is to typify it. And that's a goal. We try very hard not to have 15 very slick melodramas made by white males. So it's intentional for us to show a range of different kinds of independent cinema. It's interesting that 30 years ago, this was still the line of dialogue. This has always been essential to the mission of the festival. And still, many of the biggest hits that have emerged from the festival have been, if not necessarily melodramas, a lot of films made by white males. And that is also a, a complexity, a kind of contradiction to the festival and to movies like Reservoir Dogs and Clerks kind of constantly emerging out of this, out of the snow, really. Yeah, and in that sense, you know, are they setting the somewhat static 
agenda for American popular cinema, or are they reflecting an agenda that's bigger than Sundance and bigger than, than Sundance hype? You know, it's a chicken and egg kind of situation. I, I mean, this is with no disrespect to the filmmakers who I think maybe on a film-by-film basis from Sundance, I prefer to Tarantino. I'm not saying that a Richard Linklater or a, or a Spike Lee is a lesser artist, but let's be honest. Tarantino is the most gigantic, influential, important filmmaker who's probably primarily associated with this festival, right? Spike Lee and Michael right. Moore, and, Moore and Lee are in the ring. Right. And, and Moore is in a much narrower sphere of, of visibility because it's documentary. And then Tarantino is also associated with Cannes because that's where he won his Palme d'Or. But in a way, Tarantino being the, the, the not the face of Sundance, but, you know, its most successful uh, son, I don't think you can blame on Sundance. I think that's just American film culture. And, you know, his, his movie happened to be there. I don't think Sundance, well, what, what am I trying to say? I don't think Sundance made Quentin Tarantino what he is. And I don't think that Quentin Tarantino's appeal is data, is tied back to Sundance. The conditions were wonderful and vivid. And I'm sure the people who paid a hundred bucks to watch it at the Egyptian, it was a kind of life-changing, you know, seeing the sex pistols in a small club kind of thing. <laughs> but I don't attribute Tarantino to Sundance. I think Sundance has more incremental influences across the board in, in, the, in the ways that you're talking about, other kinds of genres and different kinds of writer-director cinema. In a way, when you mentioned John Sayles and Barbara Koppel, that's kind of what I think of as part of the Sundance image for a good long time, which is good, dutiful, lefty, liberal, political cinema overseen by Robert Redford. You know, that's, 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 the, that's the vibe. I don't think that to put a finer point on it, it's not that Tarantino needed Sundance per se, because it would have been somewhere else that would have scooped this movie and celebrated so. it. But they may have needed him. I think there is a strong case Maybe. that... If not for him and then a cadre of folks that came in, you know, a handful of years after him, the festival, you know, in 1991, there's this premier magazine story about how the there was a crisis at the festival and that there was financial mismanagement and low morale and Redford had sort of like taken a step back because we think of the, the festival as emerging really in the late 80s, but the Sundance Institute had been around since 1981. This is a long term. I mean, we're, we're in the in, into the fifth decade of Sundance at this point, which is re- pretty remarkable, actually. And, you know, in 1991 and 92, a handful of titles emerged that become not just celebrated works of art, but financially viable movies that Hollywood is wrapping its arms around and finding a way to reinterpret, remake, resell to the public at large. And I, I'll just say, like, one of the things that jumps out to me before we start talking about some of these movies is it wasn't just Tarantino who was branded this year it was the, it was that whole class of filmmakers you know and i'm not talking about the new queer cinema filmmakers or the black filmmakers who had films there it was primarily white filmmakers mostly men but not entirely some of whom were friends or became friends you know allison anders and you mentioned alexander rockwell and neil jimenez and michael steinberg and tarantino they all ended up working together in various forms making movies together and they were making I think it not the Little Miss Sunshine version of Sundance movies, but something that seemed to be a slightly more impish Jim Jarmusch kind of vision yeah. of movies that I think has also just completely dissipated out of the culture. Like I don't see any movies now, like Gas Food Lodging or In the Soup. Like I don't even know how, what to compare those movies to. I was trying to. Think, I mean, you teach film. Like how would you situate movies like this to students? I mean, I mean, I think that you'd, you'd situate them by saying that the the someone will yell at me on Twitter for saying this, you know, 
things like mumblecore are not the same. Please, no one have me say Bujalski is equivalent to Darmish or anything like that. They're the same in the sense that they feel like something unified. They feel like something that's defined by a kind of smallness and a kind of difference. And then little communities form around that. I mean, weirdly, and this is now tied, I think, more to what Sundance actually shows, sort of that same like fraternity or community of elevated horror now, you know, mm-hmm. like... I don't think that that's a Sundance creation, though I would trace some of that nomenclature to something like Hereditary, which was a Sundance movie. It was. But, you know, but but yeah, I mean, you mentioned in the notes we had for the episode, I mean, Four Rooms is sort of an example of the Sundance kids coming home to roost a little bit. But the festival's effect is also then felt through that generation of late 90s and early 2000s American filmmakers who, whether or not they're Sundance alumni, literally, because of the Tarantino effect, that's where their careers come from. You know me, I don't know much about Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, you know, and <laughs> you talk to a licorice pizza with a bunch of other people, but the whole thing- I was waiting for you to bring this but up. But the whole thing with cigarettes and coffee is that's developed at Sundance too. Mm-hmm. And his whole career is like a Petri dish version of, of Tarantino, the same way that New Line wanted Boogie Nights to be their Pulp Fiction. And that's where you see some of that other impact. I would never consider Paul Thomas Anderson a Sundance filmmaker. He started there, and then he belonged to all these other festivals. It's Berlin and Cannes, actually really Toronto that made his bones. But the Sundance effect on a filmmaker like him, or the Sundance effect on a filmmaker like a, like a Sofia Coppola, even if the films aren't really there, the context of hotshot new American indie filmmaking that Tarantino cultivated has a big impact on how those filmmakers kind of get packaged and move up through the through through the ranks. Though if any of those filmmakers were now to be at Sundance, I feel like some people would see that as a weird downgrading where they would sort of be like, well, why aren't they at Cannes? New York Film Festival, because when it comes to the absolute best of international art cinema, Sundance has gotten there probably dozens of times, but it's more fluky as opposed to the real programming mandate. I mean, you don't look at the Sundance World Cinema Competition and think it's going to be like the Cannes competition. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. 
Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. The, the alumni from 92 is a, is a mixed bag, I would say. And it's interesting to think about how many of the filmmakers who you know, debuted here or had big, noisy films here are still active and still commanding the culture. You know, one thing I don't, I don't really, I, see, I recall seeing this a couple of times, I guess Steven Soderbergh's Kafka premiered at Sundance, um, which is a film that has gone by the wayside in a big way and is actually due for a big restoration this year, I think also by the Criterion Channel yeah, and Collection. Too, yeah, I um, But, you know, that's, not, it's, that's a film that is not really cited much. But instead, what you have is a handful of filmmakers who I guess are still kind of making work that is in the culture. Mira Nair, I suppose, who had Mississippi Masala there that year. You know, you've got, um, of, of course, you've got Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky's uh, Brothers Keeper, and Joe Berlinger is kind of the overlord of true crime documentary and making a lot of stuff for Netflix now. Yep. Um, though, though maybe not as good as some of the stuff he made in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and gosh, I mean, aside from Tarantino, I mean, Jim Jarmusch had Night on Earth there. And- yeah, but Jarmusch was a known commodity at that point. He's there like Paul Schrader's there with films that are, you know, these are just, these are filmmakers who've been discovered already. And I yes. quite like Night on Earth and I quite like Light Sleeper, but I don't Me think th- I don't think those movies are beneficiaries of the Sundance effect. They're just a byproduct of it being a good, cool festival. And if it fits in people's schedules or if they're not going to get into the can competition or their distributor wants to put them out earlier in the year, like, sure, put them at Sundance. But I mean, like, you know, Sundance is not putting light on Paul Schrader in 1992. He's Paul Schrader, you know. No, although I guess you could make the case that he's in a bit of a, a lull at that point sure. in his career in terms of in terms of how he's received or celebrated by the culture but i guess jean-pierre Jeunet, who has a new movie coming did you know he has a new movie coming out in february no is it um, is it not, uh, amelie 2 it's not amelie 2 no. i think it's called big bug and it's gonna be on <laughs> netflix netflix has uh is bankrolling the latest jean-pierre Jeunet movie right. anyway i mean he had delicatessen that year which was which was a noisy movie in its own right but an international film not an american film sure. and that and which felt like a vanguard of something right for people who aren't familiar with with uh, delicatessen it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic movie but the genre elements are really like out of the usual configuration it's sort of like a study of an apartment and a study of a community like it's it's like mad max if it didn't go outside i guess i don't know if that's the way to to describe it i mean it gets violent and cannibalistic too but it's whimsical it's whimsical yeah dash of tim burton dash of terry gilliam you know there's some some genre elements, some oddity, you know, maybe a little roll doll going on in there in the storytelling. Right. Uh, but I, I guess like, it seems like in the soup, gas food lodging, you mentioned Greg Araki's Living, Living End. End. Um, Derek Jarman's Edward II, which I guess is the, the sort of the, the standard bearer of the new queer cinema and kind of like the leading film in that, in that movement around when this conversation starts. 
And then the water dance and Zebrahead are the ones that all kind of jump out to me as the dramatic films that garnered a reputation, some of whom have withstood the test of time, others that have sort of trickled off into the ether of independent cinema. And that's a tricky thing with indie movies when they are proudly indie. They don't always necessarily get to have a widely understood legacy the same way that Hollywood movies do because there's no apparatus to support their history. Well, no, and and it's interesting who ends up winning and who ends up losing or who ends up being diminished. For instance, you mentioned Gas Food Lodging, which is a wonderful movie by Alison Anders, who made another even more wonderful movie called Grace of My Heart with Ileana Douglas, which is one of the great performances of the mid-90s to not get an Oscar nomination. But I mean, Anders, for various reasons, I don't know much about her personally, but her her career kind of waned and it's often used as a kind of a case study in how a lot of the room that male independent filmmakers that period would have to fail and sometimes fail spectacularly, like fail on aesthetic levels and artistic levels and just straight up suck, you know, to come back and make something else. And that, that opportunity was not afforded to her. And I'm also, I mentioned to you in the email, a big fan and not just ironically of Poison Ivy by a female filmmaker, Kat Shea, which is the sleaziest kind of, you know, early 90s exploitation. It's really the kind of car crash Drew Barrymore performance as her life was kind of hitting the skids a little bit. She plays this temptress. But you say you haven't watched Poison Ivy, I haven't seen it recently. Not only is it not a bad movie, it's made with a sense of kind of like, you know, grittiness and and feeling that comes out of the other stuff that Kat Shea had done. I mean, Kat Shea had made a, a, a movie, I don't know if anyone has seen the film Streets, which has Christina Applegate, which is about a drug-addicted prostitute in Los Angeles, which has a really kind of like safty-ish driving kind of energy to it. I mean, I think Kat Shea was a real filmmaker and she's talked about the fact that you know her career kind of fell apart as well and something like poison ivy was a bit of a a bit of a punchline at sundance even though really it fit with the festival's mandate in some ways it's actually independent has a kind of strong directorial uh, personality so i guess what i'm saying is that of all the sundance kids the same basic things that happen in hollywood happen in independent films too which is female filmmakers are either immediately marginalized out of the box or or, or they make a, a first successful movie and then they're kind of not allowed to failure to fail and kind of middling uh middling male writer directors hang around forever we n- never and never get rid of them that remains true. I would say in the last three to four years that it feels like the first time really in the history of filmmaking that that is starting to change in a, in yeah. a somewhat meaningful way. The Alison Anders example is 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 a bit baffling because Gas Food Lodging was her second film. Her third film was Mi Vida Loca, which is also a terrific movie. Grace Then, then comes the four-room segment in Grace of My Heart. And then she makes a fairly small movie called Sugar Town and another movie called Things Behind the Sun in 2001. And then she doesn't direct a feature film for 11 years she makes a couple of tv movies in the interim but how something like that could have happened i guess in that time she's you know directing some episodes of sex in the city and she's really working primarily as a tv director and has directed quite a bit of prestige television in the last 20 or so years and has had a has had a real good career an admirable career but she's not having quentin tarantino's career um and she's I mean, she's not even really, I would think, I would say thought of in the way that, you know, the way that you could wax poetic about what Derek Jarman did for, for filmmaking or even, even what, uh, what, what, what Paul Schrader represents in the nineties, I think it to filmmaking, you know, the, those movies in the nineties that she made, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because they don't have a noisy 
Criterion collection box set behind them. Maybe it's about some of the stories that she's centering that just don't seem interesting to people. But well, look, she's who, a particularly fascinating one. Well, I mean, for a, a story with a happier ending, but where the middle of the story is the same. Two years later, it's Sundance Kelly Reichardt made River of Grass. Mm-hmm. It took her almost almost ten years before she was able to direct another feature. So there's consistencies and there's continuities in these. In, in these disparities and what's fair and what's not. And while Gas Food Logic and River of Grass aren't quite the same stylistically, there's a sense of sort of realism to them and the fact that it's not just female directors, but very much telling telling women's stories. I mean, again, in the in that Criterion doc about the festival, it's really kind of interesting to see the, the panels that are sort of being convened. And you get a sense from all the panelists, whether they look kind of happy to be there or sarcastic to be there, they know what they're pushing against. And they know that it's in the room with them. It's not just off in Los Angeles, far from Park City. They, they know what kind of preferences and what kind of commercial and industrial leverage they're pushing against or they're sort of trying to, to grab. And that's one of the unstated, not unstated, it's one of the interesting subtexts with the John Pearson book and, and Spike Mike Slackers and, and Dougman. It leads with Spike Lee's name. But, you know, for the most part, the protagonist of that movie is Kevin Smith and the idea of an American independent cinema made in the Tarantino Kevin Smith image, which is basically white and nerdy, right? I'm glad you brought that up because the other thing that Sundance has done well essentially across its entire existence and continues to do well, honestly. The best stuff I've seen this week at Sundance is documentary. And um, the documentaries from this year in 1992 are deeply admirable. Some of them are great. And they have much clearer missions and it's much easier for them, I think, to uh, clarify their politics. You know, this is the year of A Brief History of Time, the Stephen Hawking film by Errol Morris, probably my favorite documentarian of all time. Um, he's a consistent participant in Sundance over the years. I mentioned Berlinger and Sanofsky and Brothers Keeper, a movie that ha- was on Netflix for many, many years. I don't think it is anymore. If you haven't had a chance to see this movie, uh, it is a confounding, very different sort of true true crime story. Um, Michael Abtet's Incident at Oglala was this year, and a movie that I'd never seen before that I just watched last night on the Criterion Channel was Color Adjustment, which is Marlon Riggs's kind of cultural history of black identity on television which is a really, really interesting movie um, that I feel like if it were made today would be, be hailed. Hu- as- it, would be, it would be a huge deal. Yeah, it would, be, it, would be, it would be a visionary work of cultural criticism. And now it's only now, basic, basically has only meaningful distribution today, yeah. 30 years later, which is pretty wild. And there are a number of other examples. It's a very, but- it's a very funny movie. The, the Riggs one. I mean, like just the, 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 the analysis and juxtapositions that he makes. They're maybe not laugh out loud funny, but they're very wry. They're very smart. Yeah, it's very clever. I mean, it's, it's one of those movies that I think also was kind of transgressive in that it has, you know, deeply thoughtful participants at, uh, in Hollywood and sociologists observing the problematic nature of something like Amos and Andy, but also saying like, there's great performance here. And so how do we tangle with that? How do we tangle with the idea of a bad thing having elements that are worth uh, worth celebrating you know there it, it's not it isn't just like this hectoring down the middle like here's why this was bad until it got good kind of yeah. analysis that i think we find all the time there's there's a complexity in the filmmaking and the ideas that he's trying to sell and again i think that's something you see in sundance in, in docs over the years all the time and i don't i, I don't know what to say about that other than it's a safe space for a slightly more 
transgressive style of documentary filmmaking than I think what you find when you turn on Netflix every day, which is this, so this we've, we have a, we've, we're in a prototype era of, of docs and Sundance is still kind of pushing beyond something. There. Well, you mentioned Berlinger and I mean, he's not as influential as Moore, but yeah, I mean, pretty much any true crime that gets made for streamers now to some extent is, is living off of not just brothers keeper, but you know, the West Memphis movies and whatever else. And, sure. in, and in some ways, I feel that's a cross that he should bear because the explosion of the true crime industry from some angles is quite lurid and gross. And then from other angles, you know, people just, you know, just, just love that stuff. But I mean, Brothers Keeper, which yet yeah, has been a hard, I mean, not a super easy movie to find before now. And if anyone has a chance to watch it on Criterion Channel, they should. It's a movie made with such a lack of judgment and so so little hand-holding i mean even in terms of refusing to clarify what the filmmaker necessarily really thinks and some of that is the reticence of these characters who sort of exist on the margins and outside of societal norms and in this very kind of dilapidated old weird american kind of kind of backdrop and yeah, I mean, that's probably the version of Sundance that people who love and respect the festival love and respect their memories of is as a launching pad for filmmakers like that. And I think the role in Sundance of popularizing documentaries and putting documentary filmmakers front and center shouldn't be understated. That is a big part of what they've done. They say so in the doc where one of the programmers is like, we always saw the world dramatic and, and doc competitions as sort of equal. Right. So, you know, as a as a measuring stick and launching pad for American nonfiction cinema, it, it was and I think remains kind of a big deal. I covered Sundance for Ringer last year, and I was much more impressed with the documentaries by and large than the, the feature narratives. Yeah, I, I, I am a bit of a documentary wonk, so I'm, I'm perhaps not the most um, impartial judge on that but I, i'm just consistently more interested in the documentaries that they're i just watched the exiles for example the a film about christina Choi and um a film that she tried to make in the 1980s and it's just in incredibly rich and and deeply manageable at 89 minutes you know that's the sort of thing that is happening at the festival routinely so as you go down the list of films that we saw in 1992 can, can you recommend one that people should try to track down is there something that you think aside I mean, I from poison ivy that you think is meaningful but you should watch poison ivy it's great it's a great motion <laughs> picture um i mean I, I really i just in general i love gregor Aki. And I love The Living End. I hadn't seen it in a while. And then when watching that doc, there's the one shot where uh, the two characters are having breakfast and it's this perfect bit of composition where there's a cereal box with its side turned out, or not a cereal box, but it's like, it's a Barbie box. And then on the wall, there's a Smith's poster. And you're sort of like, you know, this idea of pop cultural decor that Iraqi does so well in so many of his movies. But again, it's a road movie. It's not just a romance like my own private Idaho was previously, but more of a kind of hellacious, you know, rabble rousing kind of romance with two HIV positive characters, which it never once <laughs> apologizes for or, or seeks to, to contextualize. I mean, uh, Iraqi was a real libertine. He, he was and, and remains so. And I think it's a shame that in some ways, aside from Mysterious Skin, which was his big breakthrough, he never really had that brass ring available to him. He's had a very honorable career. But, you know, I think he's a fun kind of hellraiser. And the other movie that's from the new queer cinema that year that I really like, which we haven't mentioned, is uh, is Swoon, right? Mm. Which is uh, Which is, you know, really, really interesting, you know, gloss on Leopold and Loeb and 
think at the time, I forget if it was a programmer or if it was the, the, the director where he sort of was like, you know, you see movies about heterosexual couples who commit murder and no one pathologizes murder as a heterosexual, you know, pastime. So I think to take Leopold and Loeb and not rescue it from like Rope and Hitchcock, but just present it in a way that has a different kind of ownership of it and a different, uh, different you know, aesthetic gloss on it, and very much a companion piece to Todd Haynes's Poison. You know, I I I, I like both of those movies a lot. I think they're both in in their way a real kind of kick. As far as Gregor Aki goes, also one of my favorite directors and and someone who has made quite a few films, but has not made a film in a long time. He did make a, a TV series for Stars called Now Apocalypse in 2019. Did you ever watch this show? No, I should have. It's pretty fun. It it has a lot in common with Kaboom, the 2010 movie that he made. It feels almost like an update of Kaboom, which is also a kind of like very and, mischievous movie. And Kaboom, and Kaboom is great. Really fun. Kaboom uh, is like... All, all of his stuff is great. Yeah. So, so, um, so sorry. Sorry, go on. Uh, but I just I think he's the kind of person who also, not unlike Alison Anders, has kind of shuffled off to television and found a very productive and probably lucrative career m- making TV. He had his own show in 2019, but he's directed episodes of Riverdale and 13 Reasons Why and you know Red Oaks. I mean, this is what a lot of the filmmakers who are operating in this era, if they're still active, are up to these days. Sure. Um. What else? Anything else you want to shout out from that Zebrahead? Are you a Zebrahead fan? I have never seen Zebrahead, Sean. Oh, I've never. I've, I've never seen Zebrahead. Can you convince me on Zebrahead? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if I want to. Um, Zebrahead's it's a, it's a movie about an interracial romance between uh, a white guy and a black girl, and the white guy is played um, memorably by Michael Rapaport. I'm sold. I'm sold sold uh he obviously has a slightly different identity in our culture now than he did in 1992 although it was all there honestly it was all there going back to 1992 um and in boucher Wright, who um you know is a a, a terrific uh actor plays the love interest in that film and people may remember her from like dead presidents or from blade but um it's interesting because anthony drazen made this movie and he did not make very many movies after this and i he does not have the long career as far as i can tell of of TV work in the 2000s. One of the only movies he made was an adaptation of Hurley Burley. It was Sean Penn, which is like kind of a mess. Yes, um, so, so, so I've seen that. Uh, this movie is, it is aspiring to something that our culture has moved past is what I'll say about Zebrahead. But I think like, you know, white kids from New York who wanted to be inside of hip hop culture was something that I understood pretty clearly when I was 13 years old when I saw Zebrahead. And that's the other thing about Tarantino that I'll just say very quickly before we move on from Reservoir Dogs fully. The other thing is, if you were getting into rap at this time, the idea of Tarantino as this recombinant kind of cultural DJ was very resonant for someone like me. Picking and choosing the things that you liked. And you talked about your, you and your friends making skits for an album. That's essentially what De La Soul were doing. De La Soul were just grabbing bits and pieces of their favorite stuff and smashing it together well, I mean, I, I was, and trying to have fun. I always figured I was exactly the same as De La Soul. You know, that was always <laughs> how I how I carry myself. Yeah, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the synopsis for T-Red, and I see it's one of the first films shot by a really brilliant cinematographer by Maurice Alberti, who worked with Todd Haynes a lot and ended up shooting The Wrestler. Who's a terrific DP. So that's exciting. Um, it's 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 worth checking out. I don't is zebrahead available in that Criterion Channel collection. I don't believe so. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, what what? So just very quickly, the festival winners we mentioned in the soup, which is a you know kind of an iterative movie about a guy who wants to make movies. You know, is like it's like Fellini's stepson 
trying to remake eight and a half like yeah I don't know, and, how, and, how, how and yeah and again it represents a meeting of of indie cinema axioms because you have Steve Buscemi sharing the screen with Seymour Cassell, right? Mm -hmm. So Seymour Cassell is the proto Steve Buscemi or Buscemi is Seymour Cassell 2.0, you know, in a way. (laughs) I mean, God knows what Tarantino would have looked like in 1967, but Seymour Cassell probably would have been there. And Buscemi could have definitely carried husbands, you know? I mean, Buscemi, Buscemi is sort of the he's the mascot or not the mascot. He's the face in some ways of a lot of that new American cinema stuff. And I, I don't want to be wrong. Did trees lounge play at Sundance? In 96. I believe that it did. I mean, I but, but, but even did. if it didn't, it feels like it the platonic. Did. It, yeah. It yes. feels like the platonic ideal of a, of a Sundance movie that this movie that Buscemi made, uh, you know, about, about unemployed alcoholics. It had that Sundance vibe, which then also became its own, marketing language and programming language and theaters play movies that are festival movies in Toronto. So we had a whole chain of cinemas here called the festival cinemas. They would show either what was at TIFF or what was at Sundance. So it's a way of either selecting an audience or driving an audience towards a kind of movie. And that's definitely how I remember seeing or hearing about In the Soup as that kind of a a thing. I think what In the Soup speaks most to is the fact that Barton Fink came out the year earlier. You know, and then Buscemi also is involved in Living in Oblivion, the Tom DeSillo movie, which is also about navel-gazing white filmmakers. So that's another Cohen effect or Tarantino effect is these people like, oh, my God, the creative process is so hard. You know, him emerging as the mascot of all of these filmmakers was always fascinating. But another example of a guy whose career, you know, he had done bit parts. He was Test Tube and King of New York, you know, in 1990. He, He had small parts in New York movies. But Hollywood got interested in him. They got interested in him in the char- as the character actor du jour for about ten years there, and that, that, those were good times. He's he's anytime he, he crops up in a movie, I'm never disappointed. No, none of this should be confused with anything but the highest esteem for Steve Buscemi, who is like flat out one of the great American actors of the, the of that period, you know. And but but it's very suggestive that he's in the 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 officially ratified Sundance movie that year in the soup, which he carries. You know, if it won the grand prize because of him and then you know a little more casually into the side he's in he's in reservoir dogs you know it's an interesting thing a number of other films won awards that year brief history of time we mentioned the water dance which is a movie we haven't talked about very much brothers keeper you know uh zebrahead did win the directing award uh for anthony drazen a movie that did not win an award that year is reservoir dogs and yet here we are with 30 minutes on Reservoir Dogs at the top of this conversation. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure Quentin makes that trade a hundred uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Quentin makes that trade hundreds and hundred. I don't know. What I know about Quentin is he likes to win. So I think it not winning probably uh, rankles even to this day. Fair, um, fair enough. I I gotta say, I don't think I realized this until I was reading about the movie again last night to prepare for this conversation, but um you know, that famous scene where the ear is sliced off and where the famous four-way shootout takes out or uh, showdown takes off at the end of the movie that, that it looks like a disused factory of some kind. Um, that is five minutes from my house. It is a formal funeral parlor and embalmings zone that is five minutes away from where I live. And that feels, it feels right. It feels like the movie that sprung me into this world that got me understanding what Sundance and the movie industry, frankly, is 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 right around the corner um well that scene i mean it's interesting when you mentioned a lot of the negative criticism and sort of controversy around that scene i'll say something else about reservoir dogs as well written and and cast as it is in your mind's eye take that scene out of the movie 
what's the movie? I mean, it's not nothing because everything about it is still good, but the way that it stops dead to basically put forth, a, it's an aesthetic statement that it's making. It's saying, we are stopping everything to show you something that is now being framed and presented in such a way that is going to either make you uncomfortable or you are past discomfort, in which case you're cool. It's so presentational. It takes place beneath the proscenium. You know, Madsen is not just performing for the victim. He's performing for us. It's the essence of gratuity of gratuitousness and it's the movie. And yet, and yet, one, we do not see the ear being removed. No, we don't. Just, just as we do not see the heist in the movie. And that's the thing is that ultimately Tarantino, who is known as this vulgar provocateur, loves to withhold. And that's another thing that I really like about the movie. As much controversy as there was, you know, draped around this movie. My final memory of it is in 1999, in my AP English class... <laughs> We in the closing weeks of the year after the te- test had already been administered, when there was nothing left to do but sit in class and chat about books, we had show and tell, and every member of the class brought in one piece of culture that said something about them. And I chose to show this scene in the AP English class. No, people were not happy. I was not celebrated for my taste, except for maybe a handful of people who were close to me at the time. And yet, my teacher essentially had to shout down the students by saying it's the telling and not the showing that is happening in Quentin Tarantino movies. And that's why it was a good choice for that sequence. And so even looking back on it, was it really that gratuitous, that sequence? Or did it tell us something, show us something about Mr. Blonde that we otherwise wouldn't have believed because we never saw the heist in the first place? Oh, it, well, and it well, tells us something about Tarantino that every subsequent movie would double down on, which is that he knows how to use pop culture. It's like it's the Ludvico technique from Clockwork Orange, and it is just Clockwork Orange. It's it's Steeler's Wheel instead of Singing in the Rain. But it's the <laughs> idea that he's going to take things that are kind of he's going to use easy listening to cut off someone's ear. Right? It's wielding, you know, wielding pop culture in a very kind of funny and 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 and, and, and punitive kind of way. I mean, I love that scene too, and it's indivisible from my memories of the movie. But I feel like if you take it out, there's no point where the movie is taking a bow. And I think of Tarantino as a filmmaker who likes to take bows in the middle of what he's doing. I don't know if I could make a list of the least self-effacing American filmmakers of all time. He's he's very, very, very close to the top, you know. And I and I think that. Uh, that's part of the legacy for good and for and 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 for ill of of of, uh, of Reservoir Dogs. I'll say this: in Toronto a few years ago, a filmmaker friend of mine, Chandler Levac, staged a reading of Reservoir Dogs, which was all female, you know. And what was really interesting was beyond all the surface kind of jokes and undermining of all that. I remember we all went and watched at U of T in the theater there. It was done on stage, but they did it in the theater at U of T. And what everyone said as a compliment to the movie, they were like, "Wow, the movie still works." Because actually having the parts read in a stage play kind of area was still pretty compelling as drama. So if you hear me, you know, taking little shots at Tarantino here and there, it's not because the movies are bad. And Reservoir Dogs is, I think, one of his better ones. So, yeah. Adam, it's, it's time good. for you to take a bow. Time for you to take a bow, man. Yeah, right. What's the best thing you've seen at Sundance, Sean? Um, I don't know. Perhaps you should stay tuned to the big picture later this I week. I will. Because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, 
talked to, I think, Amy Nicholson about all the things that we've been watching at the festival. I did mention to you right before we started that I just saw one of the nastiest pieces of horror that I've seen in a little while. It's a film called Speak No Evil, which will, I believe, be on Shudder later this year. And um, that's a Danish film, and it's got... Uh, it, it's willing to show what Reservoir Dogs often is not willing to show. But Adam, listen, thank you for doing the show. You can read Adam on The Ringer and and frankly all over the place. One of the great film critics working today. Uh, and you'll be back soon, so looking forward to that. Thank you to Steve Allman for his work on this episode. And of course, thank you to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for putting it all together. Stay tuned to The Big Picture. Like I said, we'll be talking about Sundance and, and maybe a little bit of uh, awards situations as well. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.